there can be no denying that we live in a time of perpetual connection, and in the midst of never-ending information, certain topics rise to the top of the oceans of news, and we stop for a minute and it trends, and the world society will soak in it, mull over it, speak of it. While we must be ever aware of misinformation, there can be no denying that that topic being discussed does not have a foundation of importance to many people. While details may fail us and may be hotly contested, we must wade through the waters to the others in the waves like us, and as image bearers of God, we must do our best to find a way to honor our Creator as God's creation. As these waves crest, we can find our anchor in Christ and our mutual need for Him, and in that storm that comes from the pride of life, be humbled at our likeness, life breathed into us by the same God. Welcome to Millennial Ramblings Podcast 6. My name is Joe Marbury, and joining me today is my friend, brother in Christ, and pastor, Michael Wilkes. Good evening, Michael. Good evening, Joe. <laughs> Michael, uh, we've known each other, I guess we've our families have known each other for quite a while. We haven't really spent a lot of time together until the past several years, but tell me a little bit, tell the audience a little bit about yourself, where you're from, what you do. Yeah, so Joe, we go back to, uh, I remember when you were a little kid, I knew your family uh, since the time that I got saved at uh, New Covenant. Baptist Church in Denham Springs, which was about 20 years ago now. Oh, wow. I got saved. And uh, so I grew up in Denham Springs, like I said, uh, was saved at New Covenant uh, about 20 years ago. And God changed my life uh, and set me on a new course. I now am married uh, for 17 years, and we have five kids and I pastor the Oaks Church here in Denham. And uh, that's me. That's you. Yeah, man. So we've, I serve um, as a deacon at the church that he pastors at. Um, I really haven't gotten to get too much involved with that, though, because unfortunately, as soon as they um, appointed us as deacons, we uh, had a kid. Well, we went and had a kid. And then right after that, Corona hit and it just, it's messed up everything. <laughs> So, um, but yeah, so me and Michael have known each other. Um, our families have known each other. I've known Michael. I actually, we got to, we had a little bit of crossover whenever I was an intern at Northside and you were still youth pastor at New Covenant. Um, uh, we did a couple trips. We had camp together and then we did like a canoe trip together. Yeah. And I served it with another pastor, um, as an intern. Anyway, coming back to the, the the introduction, we were talking, uh, really the topic obviously that we're talking about is talking about racism. Um, it's a conversation that is all over the news. Um, it's a conversation that repetitively has come up over the last four to five years. Um, I feel like it's become, as I've gotten older, I've heard more and more about it. Um, whereas when I was young, I didn't consider myself raised in a family or in an environment that um was racist or anything like that um or had a supremacist ideal or ideology um but it's definitely since i guess trayvon martin what was that 2013 i believe was about the time that trayvon martin was killed and ever since then it's it's been you know once twice three times a year something comes up and then more recently um, with the uh, ahmaud aubrey and george floyd their deaths have brought in this uh, question of does America accept racism? 
And so we just kind of really wanted to talk about that today from our perspective. And it's not so much trying to force across our opinion of one side versus the other. It's more of where is the common ground um, and how should we respond to this? But I wanted to get your initial reaction. What was your initial reaction to hearing about the most recent um, news of George Floyd's death? Yeah, you know, unfortunately, uh, you know, I have to admit that when I first heard the news, um, I didn't, I didn't think too much about it. Uh, I heard about it in passing the way it first came to me. I didn't first see the video, and I didn't go look it up right away. You know, I was involved in other things, and it wasn't until the second day when a friend sent uh, some images of the fires in Minneapolis, yeah. and I out of ignorance said, what's going on? Where is that? And he responded, he said, you know, haven't you watched the news? Yeah. <laughs> and, you know, I said, is this about George Floyd? And then it was at that point when I finally went back and looked up the video and spent quite a bit of time watching, of course, different talking heads, sharing their opinions. But what I was really after was, you know, I wanted to see as much as I could see of that you know, I know there's several different angles and um, of that of that footage. Yeah. Um, and I'll tell you that uh, when I saw that, there were already a couple of different narratives that were circulating about the the character of George Floyd. But regardless of what was true about him, mm-hmm. I was I was deeply deeply disturbed, and I can tell you uh, showed my wife and even my, uh, older kids. And, um, my wife immediately was in tears, you know, yeah. uh, it was, um, it, it, it bothered us. Yeah. It's something that, um, honestly, it was a comparison in my mind of the same initial, the same reactions that I had, um, not comparing the situations, but the same feeling of whenever I've seen some of these released footages from, war footage that we've seen overseas. Um, but my initial reaction before I jump into that, my initial reaction was, is we were on the road, uh, just driving around town, grabbing some groceries and stuff. And Erica said, did you hear about the Minnesota police officer that, um, that, that killed the black man? And I, my, I think my initial reaction was here we go again. Mm. Um, and that I'm really sharing that bluntly because I want to show exactly where, my heart has been sometimes not so much with racial prejudice, but it's a very hotly contested subject. You know, is the police, was the police officer in the right or wrong? And so my first thought was, here we go again. There's going to be this all over the news. And, you know, there's going to be arguments about if the police are right or wrong. And I hadn't even seen the video yet. I hadn't even seen anything about it. Just Erica said that. And my first thought was, Oh no, here we go again. We, I kind of just push it out of my mind and it was later that day. I think I got on Facebook and I was scrolling and it's just comment after comment. So finally I went to the video and watched the video and I was like, like you were, I was shocked because you know, we can, we can dive into the the different points about the video, but honestly, whenever I watched the video, I, I couldn't say that I looked at that man and thought he's the cop and say I thought the cop was racist because I, I couldn't see evidence of that because I don't so I don't want I didn't want to make that judgment call from the beginning. Right. But I saw a man that was completely oblivious as to 
and obstinate that he was not going to take into consideration any sort of repercussion of what was going on. Right. He he did not consider any sort of care or exhibit any sort of care towards the person that he was detaining, which I understand in those situations, I'm sure police officers get agitated as well. But uh, sure. I was shocked by the amount of comments that were going on through the, you know, eight and a half minutes of people saying he, you know, the man can't breathe. He's calling out for it. Um, there's, uh, you know, the other police officers standing by and nobody's trying to say, Hey man, how about you get your knee off his neck? Right. So anyway, my initial reaction was, was kind of denial. And then when I saw it shock, um, and realized this is, you know, there's been several cases and I've not always agreed with the reactions of all, of all of the different police killings, but this one definitely, I was like, this is, you know, this man did something terrible. Yes. Um, he murdered this guy. Yeah. Um, and you know, one of the things, uh, racial motivation aside, whether it was there or not there, <clears throat> what was apparent to me, even in the first watching was you said obstinate. I saw a measure of pride yeah. and I can't, I can't really speak to whether that was uh, feelings of uh, superiority because he was white or because he was the authority figure, of, you know, the man yeah. of the law or whatever the case. But when it seemed when those in the crowd, you know, on the sidewalk were pleading with him yeah. to let his knee off of the man's neck and, you know, just very passionate in their pleas, seemed like he became even more obstinate. Yeah. <laughs> and it's almost like he... At that point, I, it just seemed to me that he was just not going to admit that he was wrong. He, he wouldn't, but he wouldn't budge. Yeah. You know. Whereas I, I, I'll just leave that right there. Yeah, uh, that that definitely was the the disturbing part, as well as the, the the standing the people that were standing by. You know, the first video that I really saw was I think it was a couple of days before I saw other angles, but the first video that I saw was the one that people have taken the snapshots from of him. Um, with the the cars in between them, and all you see is the side of the cop with his knee on the guy's neck, and George Floyd on the ground in his head, and then you see the the um, other police officer stand there trying to keep the crowd back. Right, and it was so watching that, I was confused because I put myself in that situation. I try, and I know it's really kind of impossible to actually know exactly the situation, but I I, I feel like I didn't see the other cops that were behind him, but I feel like at that point I would turn around and be like, hey man, like get your knee get your knee off the guy's neck sure um but yeah so you know everybody has seen all of those those points and really we wanted to talk today discussing the reaction to that you know the the media has put out you know there's really two the media has put out two different extremes mm. you know you have um rioting and protesting you know, peaceful protesting as well as people burning down buildings, um, looting, rioting, all of that. Then you have um, other people who are obstinately saying, I, you know, I've seen it on Facebook. People have said he deserved it. You know, he was a he was a criminal. What else was he expecting? Um, he had been detained. He shouldn't have resisted. He should. And um, then you see the people with the argument between um, people say Black Lives Matter and other people say, oh, well, all lives matter. And I'll be the first to confess that I've actually been in that boat before. Um, and I think the difference between then and now is the fact that I felt like the other situations that were being argued, some of the other police killings, I felt like 
were being escalated to a level or put onto a precipice and maybe they shouldn't have been. Right. Um, that's personal thought. But looking at this, realizing from some of my close friends, I had a, a friend, uh, I won't say their name, but a mutual friend of ours from Georgia who had posted that they were sorry that their response had always been all lives matter. When you see the insens- insensitivity to it, mm. um, I look at it and I go, yeah, I can see where I've been there. So that's that's something that's in my progression of this. That was the next step for me was after the initial reaction and seeing the arguments go back and forth, realizing the insensitivity that I've had before of saying, well, my response is all lives matter. Well, yes, but if you if you're not looking at the three percent that are tearing the city down and you actually go out and listen to the people that are on the streets that are against police brutality, that want to see their communities better, they say, we're just trying to say can you pay attention to us? There's something going on here that we need to address. And, you know, that's a, that's a kind of where I'm at with that. But as you progressed along, what were your, your thoughts throughout this, the heart changes or. Um, you know, I think, uh, I, I don't know about a heart change except that, uh, this time, I think because, um, you know, my daughter uh, read something to me, I believe it was the night before last, and said this is uh, now officially the largest civil rights movement ever in history. Wow. Um, with protests in all 50 states, and I don't even know what the number of countries would be at this point or, or what she told me at that point, but that it is officially the largest ever. And, I mean, there's definitely a, a momentum that has increased, you know, from the from the very first time that I actually watched the video and saw the first riots in Minneapolis, the 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 footage of that, the uh, you know, the sense of urgency to to stop and ask the question, what do I need to do? Yeah, I know I'm small. <laughs> yeah. And um there's not a whole lot I can do personally, but you know, if uh, all of us will stop and ask that question and do simple little things, yeah. then differences will be made. Yeah. Uh, progress can yeah. happen. Well, d- there's definitely that internal feud because you find yourself especially in our position of being Christians and being white men you definitely see both sides of the spectrum in those arguments of people that are close to you. You know, I've seen people that I grew up with that I wouldn't even necessarily say they're racists, but they have extremely strong feelings about regard for the police and regard for authority. And, uh, they don't seem to be able to see they, they, their initial reaction is always, yes, but what about, you know, we should defend police rights. Sure. Um, and honestly, that was a big struggle that I had, you know, me and my wife, my, my, for those of you that don't know, my wife's Peruvian. And we had many hotly contested conversations, I think 10 in a week, um, mm. where we would take a break and have to calm down and come back to it because she kept telling, and this is what brought me to the point of realizing that I was, I had been obstinate before is she said, you're not considering people's feelings. Mm. And I kept using the Ben Shapiroism. Facts don't care about your feelings. <laughs> and there's a middle ground there. Facts are important for making progress and procedure and laws for the general public. However, if you're trying to come along someone as a Christian, you have to take into account what they've been through before. Sure. 
And so she was sharing with me, you know, things that had happened in the past. And I was, I found myself almost writing them off because I was so angry about the situation. Because whenever you're accused of, um, you know, people say that, you know, we're privileged, you know, they coined the term white privilege. It's, it puts you in a defensive mood when someone says that to you mm-hmm. because no one wants to consider that they're being treated better because of the skin of, because of the color of their skin. They don't want to admit that. Um, and so, you know, that's kind of a topic of discussion as well, but that was, we, like I said, we had numerous conversations, you know, to the point of tears on both of our part, um, anger and frustration about the situation and how to respond. And that's where I kind of broke through at the point of realizing that I had been insensitive before and that there is a middle ground and that I should be able to see the middle ground from both sides. So I had to come out of my ditch and try to walk into the road um, and not, you know, dive into the other ditch. But yeah, so I don't know what kind of conversations you had or thoughts. Yeah, I mean, I think the the question uh, for me and the, the you know what I've been asking and and have actually been asked by several other people as a pastor and and just as a friend um is you know what what can we really do you know mm-hmm. from this place of privilege and even though we uh and I I admit man I resist like I don't I don't feel like I'm privileged like I have everything handed to me any more than somebody else who um has darker skin than me you know yeah uh, but that's just it. It's impossible for me to understand the uh, cultural situation, the upbringing, the environment, the experiences, the the trauma yeah. that uh, somebody else has been through, and that um, you know. I think what's going on is a um, you know, uh, a, a, a lashing out in response to not just, I mean, it's, we all know that it's, it's not just about as tragic as it is what happened with George Floyd. It's the fact that there, uh, there are feelings of oppression uh-huh. that admittedly I cannot get my mind around because they're not my experience. Um, that, you know, the, that people desperately want to see come to an end. And, you know, this is an opportunity to make that statement, to see change happen. And what what I think is important for us, you and me, and people who are in our situation, not by choice, but just by by things that are completely out of our control. We didn't Uh choose what color skin we were born with or where we were born or what kind of environment. um, But it's I think it's incumbent upon us as especially as Christians to humble ourselves to not just let this be a a polarizing issue but among many other things we need to let it um shout with the volume all the way up of a a situation that's real that's going on and that we have a a strategic place or responsibility to do something about it and what can we do like i mean i i i can't change what's happened, can't undo the things that have been done, can't erase history. That's impossible. But I think one of the first things for us to try to do, first things for us to do really is learn how to listen. Yeah. You know, stop going on defense. Yeah. 
you know, I was, I was talking with somebody just a little while ago and uh, a white lady, and she said, I just feel like I, I don't know, you know, what I can say, because whatever I say, whether I'm trying to show sympathy, then that's, you know, kind of patronizing or, um, you know, speak my mind, then I'm being offensive. It's like, whatever I say is, is going to be, uh, taken the wrong way. And so I don't know what to say. And I said to her, I said, well, what have you said to a black person recently that's offended them? And she said, well, nothing. It's like, so that's, that's not even a reality. But yeah. the, the truth is it's, I don't think there's something immediately that you or I need to say, um, you know, I mean, what, so what would we say? Would we apologize? Hey, like, I'm, I'm sorry. I'm white. Yeah. yeah. You know, um, no, you yeah. haven't, you haven't, no, no. What we need to do, what's most important is we need to listen. Yeah. We need to try to learn from this situation, something that we obviously don't have a, have perspective on. I think that's the most loving thing that we yeah. can do. And you know, somebody who is, who is hurting. So like, like bring this down to an individual level, not, not just talking about, you know, um, masses and masses of people, uh, somebody who's hurting, they may do things in their pain that are not wise, yeah. <laughs> uh, that we don't agree with, but you know, think of a, uh, and I, I'm not, I'm not equating, uh, this to a temper tantrum. Yeah. But think of when a child uh, is is really upset. They do things that um, that just are, are 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 bad. They misbehave. But what a wise parent will recognize is the issue is not just the the behavior. There's something uh, underneath that that's causing the behavior. And yeah. so, it, to be a good parent is to try to get to the heart of the issue, yeah. not just treat the symptom. Right. Yeah. Like get to the heart of the issue, and and that's what. Um, we have to do, and it starts by by trying to learn. Listen, uh, we have to put put the de- defenses down and admit admit that there are you know ways that we're naive. You know, I, I if you would ask me ten years ago um, if racism was a serious issue in America today, admittedly, I would have said no. I mean, I feel like that's. That's kind of gone away, and because, like you said, I, I didn't grow up in a in a racist home. You know, yeah. I mean, I, I knew the difference, not just skin color. I knew that by and large, in our community, there were significant cultural differences between quote unquote black neighborhoods and and certain white neighborhoods. Um, I mean, I could recognize some uh, cultural trends, but even that, it wasn't just a one-to-one correlation. Like, you know, black people are this way and white people are this way. Like that's not how I grew up. I knew of the past, but I I felt like, man, we've really progressed. You know, this, that that was an issue of the past. And over the last you know, uh, all of these events over the last several years have, um, it just, it, it seems that man, okay. Uh, racism is a bigger problem than I realized. And there are people who I didn't even realize have felt all the while, the same time that I'm thinking, man, we're, you know, past racism for the most part. I mean, sure. There's a few people here and there that may be, on both sides, or I guess there's more than two races, but uh, actually there's not. We'll come to that later on. <laughs> um, yeah. There's only one race, truly. Uh, right. But, um, you know, I felt like there was there was progress, but apparently all the while that I feel like, man, you know, we're in a good place in that regard, 
there's a whole segment of the population that has felt oppression growing and growing and growing and being ignored, just kind of pushed on the back burner. Whereas, you know, during the civil rights movements of, of the past, you know, before we were born, uh, they were put, they were brought to the forefront. Progress was made. And it's kind of like since then it's more or less been on the back burner and people have apparently uh, been wanting to see progress made and, and, and we didn't even know that it was needed. You know, many of us didn't know that it was, there was more progress uh, in that regard necessary. And so, um, you know, this is an alarm sounding that we, we need to take note of. I actually uh, wanted to share a little something about an experience of several years ago, I was uh, preaching in a church and uh, preaching through Ephesians. And I got to the text in Ephesians chapter two, where Paul is talking about how um, in Christ, the dividing wall between Jews and Gentiles uh, has been broken down. Ephesians 2, 16, it says, and that Jesus might reconcile us both, that is Jews and Gentiles to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and he preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. For through him, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So, you know, he's, he's talking about the importance there at the church in Ephesus of uh, realizing that we're united together. Though we have different cultural backgrounds, different religious backgrounds, different racial, ethnic backgrounds uh, that would have kept us divided and the church was still dealing with the issues of, of, of the tension when you bring, you yeah. know, uh, different cultures together. And so, you know, Paul is writing how important it is that we realize that, that we're one in Christ. And uh, this, of course, was a was a, a a religious and a racial division that they had to overcome to be the the true expression of the church. Brian Chapel, in his commentary on Ephesians, he actually had some pretty probing uh, descriptions of of what racism is, and and this really helped me to realize that we might be more racist than we think then we're willing to acknowledge. Yeah. When you b- view racism as kind of a spectrum, not just a you are, you aren't, you know? Right. And so he has a list of kind of uh, six different stages. We'll call them stages, or he calls it a hierarchy that moves from obvious bigotry to subtle racism all the way to true unity. And the, the, the last uh, example would be, you know, I think what we should be striving towards this, this picture of true unity, because in the body of Christ, I think it's important that we realize that the uh, unity that we're able to experience in the face of our diversity, whether it be uh, what we would call racial, you know, ethnic diversity or economic diversity, or generational diversity. I think that when we unite together in Christ, being very different otherwise, it's a beautiful testimony to the world around us of the value of the Lord Jesus. It's a beautiful picture of the love of Christ. And, you know, we know clearly in Scripture, in Ephesians, actually, that God has designed the marriage relationship to be a witness to the world of the relationship between Jesus and his people. And uh, I think in a very similar sort of way, the relationship that we have as the church, unity 
in the midst of diversity is a powerful testimony to yeah. the world around us. Uh, and I think right now in the midst of all the chaos that's going on in uh, the racial tensions, we as the church need to learn how to love each other even better. And that's going to give us an even better opportunity to share the gospel with people. So anyway, I want to walk through these uh, little, this hierarchy as Ryan Chapel calls it. He says that first of all, and this is the obvious expression, what we would all agree is racism. And that's somebody feeling like, you know, I have a reason to hate them simply because of their race. You know, that's yeah. everyone agrees, even uh, someone who is, you know, uh, overtly racist, like that, that's, that is classic racism, hate them just because of their race. But then, as you see, it gets a little more subtle. Uh, the next step would be we will tolerate them if they stay in their place. And, you know, as I shared this with a church I was preaching, uh, I said, you know, this is the example of like, I'm okay with people of another race as long as they don't try to come into this space and worship with me. You know, I'm good yeah. with them being Christians and having their church and like, that's a great thing, but I'd rather them, you know, stay out of here. Uh, the next step beyond that would be uh, we will accept them, even let them come into our space, as long as they become like us, as long as they, you know, carry themselves the way we carry ourselves, as long as they behave according to our subcultural norms instead of their, you know, yeah. uh, subculture. Um, so uh, as long as they talk like us and dress like us, then I'm cool with them. Yeah. And then it progresses maybe slightly better. We will accept them despite our differences. And then uh, the next step past that, we will love them because God wants us to help them. So here's the, the view of feeling, you know, I, I am not going to put them out. I have no expectations that they would become like me, but I still feel like superior, superior. you know, like, and because of, my superiority, I feel like I have to help them. And, you know, that that's a that's a actually, you know, in, in light of this conversation, all this going on, being accused of uh, what was the word white privilege. Right. Yeah. You know that people can be moved to you know, pretty superficial acts. It's not genuine love. Yeah. Um, superficial acts of almost just pity. Right. And yeah. we need to guard against like, oh, you know, poor you. Um, patronizing them. yes that's right uh, yeah. i'm i'm you know better and i can help you uh, yeah when people it's are a slap hurting, in the face. it's right to want to try yeah. to help them but we need to be careful of our attitude right yeah. and uh, i think that's very insightful to recognize that as still a form of racism it's like you're reaching down from a throne yes reaching down from you know and and that's an exalted view of self yeah and you know um I mean, I see that in in, in relationships outside of race. Sure. Um, yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. yeah. So I can definitely understand where that would come from. Yeah, that's right. And then the I think the ideal is to move beyond the place where we love them because God wants us to help them to the place where we will love them because listen to this, we need them to help us understand God. Hmm. In other oh. words, my black brother in Christ is a child of God, just the same as I am a child of God. Yeah. But his experience of the Lord and 
the way God has worked in his life is, is altogether unique. And there are things, valuable things, that I can and should learn from him. Yeah. And if I don't take the time to understand him and his experience of the grace of God and his experience of the gospel in his culture, then I'm missing out on an opportunity to know God in a deeper way. You see, that's, that's the kind of community that God has invited us to be a part of, a diverse community. Yeah. And, and you know, it's right for us to be intentional about overcoming, recognizing, you know what? I don't consider probably, there's probably nobody who's listening to this that says, you know what, I'm a racist and I'm, I want to be a racist. Probably all of us say, I'm not racist. Yeah. But the truth is that whether you're white or black or, or brown or purple or whatever yeah. color your skin may be, we all will have racist, what we would call these, you know, described by these different class or, or hierarchy of, of racism. We all have tendencies because we're Pride all, of life. Yeah, we're all prideful. We all have a tendency to think that, uh, that we're better, whoever we are. And, you know, part of loving like God calls us to is to consider others more important than ourselves in humility, right? That's the example of Christ. And so, yeah, I, I think it's moving to the place, not just where I want to help my black friends and, and uh, people in my community out because they need me, like I'm some kind of savior for them because I'm not. Jesus is the savior for both of us, for yeah. all of us. He's the only savior. And I can actually, I need them to be able to understand and know Jesus better. You know, it reminds me, um, people talk about whenever Christ was standing before Pontius Pilate and they asked to release Barnabas, not Barabbas, not Barnabas, Barabbas instead of, in, instead of Christ and to crucify Christ. There was a, a pastor and I, I, it's a very popular sermon that he went, that he went on about talking about people look at him and say, how on earth would people want Barabbas instead of Christ? Then they realized that, you know, they would compare themselves and say, I would never be in that mob that was saying we want Barabbas over Christ. But then they look at it and they say, but if I'm really honest with myself, I'm actually Barabbas. And my thought process there is, is actually when I think about the incident with George Floyd and I put myself in Derek Chauvin, the police officer's shoes. Mm. I'm not thinking about it, putting him, putting myself in his shoes of what I've handled the situation the same. But is there that obstinance that we saw in him in my own life? Yeah. And I think that that is where the conviction has come in my heart is that obstinance where, yeah, I'm not the first, I don't, I don't believe I'm the first person on that list where I hate another race. Right. But in all of those other sub points, I can see a little bit of me mm. that hasn't always just been about the black community, right. but it's been about the poor white community. Sure. It's, you know, it's always been very awkward for me to go on evangelistic trips and be put in a very uncomfortable situation and want to stay there. <laughs> mm. And, you know, if I'm in the slums in Peru, if I'm in the, the south side of Denham Springs, if I'm in in India, the all these places that I've been before, if I 
consider all of those things. I saw a little bit of myself in all of those where I would say, yeah, I can do this for now, but I'm going to go home after this. Yeah, I'm going to go back to my church and I'm going to leave this culture that is, makes me uncomfortable, that mm-hmm. I don't like, that I can't relate to, that I'm glad I'm not in that situation. And I think if we look at it that way, we can realize how those prejudices are, are more alive and well in us than we are willing to admit. Because I can see how, like I said, I can see it when I looked at my friends because I consider myself, I mean, as a young kid, I really liked myself. (laughs) So I considered myself better than people. Even if I wasn't better than them in whatever I thought, I thought, oh, I can be better than them. Just give me a little time. And I can see that in the way I would view a culture. You know, we've had joint services before at um, the church we attended at New Covenant together. We had joint services and we had black church right down the road that came. We had a joint service. And I remember even as a kid, just the cultural differences being like, what is going on? Yeah. I had nothing against the people in the room, but I was extremely uncomfortable because two completely different cultures were were facing there. And what whenever you leave that, what's your reaction? Well, like like he said, well, I love them because God wants me to. Mm. Or, um, and realizing that I need that heart change of saying, okay, I need to get on their level and not saying that that level is below me, right? but I need to be eye and eye with them and realize, and I'm, and this is part of the issue that makes it difficult is going back to the black lives matter movement. Sometimes there, obviously there's, there's wrongs in the black lives matter movement. There are overtly racist Yes. Things that come out of Black Lives Matter. However, in in that has made it harder for me to recognize at times that because I would become immediately defensive whenever they would say, you know, you have white privilege and, you know, check your privilege at the door and this and that. And then I would look at it and I would completely miss the point that they're trying to make because of what they're they're elevating. Mm-hmm. You know, all cops are pigs, things like that that they've said before. And, uh, you know, there's been signs of that they need to have another Haitian revolution, which if you're not familiar with the Haitian revolution in the 1800s, they killed off all the white people on the island and took over the island. Yes. And so you you see both sides of that. And we need to be able to excommunicate those ideals and ideas of that people have those, those outliers and be able to come to the middle like you're saying, and realize the the beauty and the diversity that God's made in the church from from all cultures. Um, yeah, and you know, I think humbling ourselves and not going in with you know, here's what I need to do or say, other yeah. than I need to first listen. There is something that I don't understand, and I need to learn, and I think that's really loving. You know, one of the yeah. one of the most loving things that we can do is uh, take the time. You know, have a conversation with somebody that uh, is in a different culture, and and get their perspective on it. Right? Ask them. Say, hey, look, I don't understand, but I want to hear your thoughts on this. Yeah, I think that's a that's a something we you know really should uh, should strive to do. You know, when I when I shared a few years back with that church that sermon and I, and I asked those six questions about racism and, and I, and I kind of illustrated them along uh-huh. the way. And I wasn't, I wasn't, didn't have anybody in the church in mind, but somebody, I didn't find out for week until weeks later, somebody was deeply offended because 
on the way home from service, his uh, teenage son asked him, Dad, are we racist? And instead of, I don't know what kind of conversation they, they had, but it seems to me that instead of having that meaningful conversation with his son to really talk about that and say, you know what? No, not, not, not intentionally, but we are broken and sinful. Yeah. And sometimes our, our judgment is skewed and we have a lot to learn and we want to strive to not be racist, but we're products of our, our environment. And we have certain tendencies that, you know, he, instead of having that conversation, I mean, he got angry and left the church over uh, what, what became dubbed uh, the sermon on racism, um, the racism sermon. And to be honest with you, I preached a larger chunk of Ephesians chapter two. And that was because I went back and listened to it. That was about one sixth of the focus of the sermon. You know, that, oh, wow. the sermon was not on racism. It was simply a sub point within this uh, picture of being one in Christ and uh, the, 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 the power of the gospel. You know, and so I think humbling ourselves instead of that knee-jerk reaction of pride and defending our stance. Look, your stance, you know, might might be logically coherent. You might you might actually be right in your stance on on most of the particulars, and you might have a great argument. But I can assure you, you also have things to learn. Yeah, and uh, that's going to require humility, and that's something I think that's really important for for us in our situation in this, this day. Yeah. I think in terms of what you're saying, be able to humble ourselves because of our stance. I think part of the reason that our culture has become so polarized on issues is because of the fact, you know, something we had discussed just for a second before we pushed record was this idea of McCarthyism. And if you're unfamiliar with what McCarthyism is, it comes from um, uh, actually a Republican candidate, uh, Republican Senator Robert McCarthy, and back in the 50s or 60s, he actually had a movement where people that, that seemed like communists, they would blacklist and spread around false evidence and basically accuse them of all these things and basically get them, you know, they would lose their jobs, they would lose their public, people's public opinion of them, all because someone accused them of something that wasn't true. And I think there's a lot of this cancel culture that goes on. People talk about that now, cancel culture, where if you say something that I don't agree with, good riddance, mm -hmm. I want nothing to do with you anymore. Um, you're completely wrong. And so I think that people take these such hard stances because of the backlash that other people give them. And so I think from both sides of the aisle, what you're saying is very important, that we both need to be able to humble ourselves sure. to a point. And the the big key with humility is is not waiting for the other person to be humble first. Yeah. That's that's the biggest fault that I mean, it's it's evidence in my marriage. The worst thing I can do is know that there's something wrong on my side, but wait for my wife to humble herself first to discuss it because it's going to fester. And that's not what we're called to do. Right. And so, so that manifests itself like, you know, I'll give credence to their problem if they stop burning buildings and, and looting. Yeah. Right. OK, yeah. so destruction of property is illegal. Yeah, you know, it's it's bad, but the yes, I mean, I I agree with that, but I'm not going to wait until they get do everything perfectly to do what I'm supposed to do. Right, you know, and I think that's the the important part of what you're saying. Yeah, and it, it, when it comes down to public policy, 
in, in those regards. Not all of this, this is not a, a guideline for public policy, which I think is also a hot topic of affirmative action, action plans. You know, are there, is there systemic racism in our society? Is there laws that make it unfair for the, and I can't really speak to all of that exactly because none of the, <laughs> this is all a personal heart thing that we're talking about and bringing the uh, public policies can change as people's hearts change. But I think if we're going to try to make a public policy to enforce heart change, it's not going to work. You can't do it the other way around. Man, our, our blind spots can be very significant. Yeah. It's really easy for us to look back in history, right. And, and note the, the blind spots that our brothers in Christ and prior generations had and and kind of leaves us scratching our heads like how could this be you know the fact that uh, many of the great heroes of our faith even you know some of the ones that are talked about regularly like Jonathan Edwards and yeah. and and many others and you know even as a, a a pastor of the Southern Baptist Convention the formation of a Southern Baptist church rather the formation of the Southern Baptist Convention uh, was rooted in you know whether missionaries could own slaves and uh, and that's that's tragic, right? Yeah. But these men were men who really deeply loved God. They were simply a product of their culture, and their culture just led them to have certain blind spots, things that we'll recognize. We can look at them from this point in history and say, hey, like that's not loving. That's not a good reflection of the love of Christ. It's not that they were intentionally walking in rebellion to the will of God. Yeah. They just were ignorant. Yeah. You know, to to that reality. They didn't see it with the same perspective that we have. The 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 things there are things, I can assure you, there are things in my life and in your life that for whatever reason the Holy Spirit just hadn't come down with the the hammer of of conviction just yet. But you know what? I do trust that through this there are going to be things that the Lord shows me and he's probably going to use brothers and sisters in Christ who have a perspective that I don't have to help me see it. And that's one of the, that's something I think we should have an expectation of, and we should, we should look forward to it. You know, God, what are you, what are you going to do? I mean, I think this, as tragic as this whole thing is, and as messy as it is, I think we as children of God should have a great hope that we're going to be able to represent our Lord, that there's going to be great opportunities, that we're going to be able to be instrumental in building bridges that uh, a year ago we couldn't have built and wouldn't have even known we needed to build. Yeah. And uh, I mean, we should look for the opportunity to to make new friends, build new relationships through learning how to listen. And and, and something that I think is important for us as, as Christians in, in regards to what can we do there is a there is a polarization of our country that's happening, and not just on the racial front. Yeah, um, man, politically, oh my goodness! I mean, our country is 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 polarizing, and it and it's tragic. And while I don't think that we need to be you know pacifist, but I think we need to re- remember our calling that our allegiance is not to some culture, yeah, or some temporal nation. Yeah. Our allegiance is to King Jesus. And yeah. we are first and foremost citizens of the kingdom of God. And we have an assignment. We have a mission. And that is to love God 
you know, to know God and to make him known. And we need to, we need to work really hard to maintain that focus that we as the people of God, we need to be a part of the solution, not the problem. Yes. Mm-hmm. But specifically the solution, uh, you know, the, 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 the problem is not just the racial issues. The problem is we live in a broken, sinful, fallen world. And the solution for the fallen condition of all of humanity and all of its manifestations is redemption through Jesus Christ. And we're entrusted with that message. And we have a unique platform to present that message and to not just present it in word. Yes, absolutely. But present it in deed through the, you know, building bridges and, and, and some of the things that we've talked about. This, this will amplify our presentation of the gospel. And man, that's got to be our focus. You know, not, not, I mean, this is, this is secondary. I mean, we, we definitely want to see uh, reform to certain policies. Yeah. But our mission, our mission is more focused than policy reform. Our mission is gospel proclamation. Yeah. And uh, we have to remember that. We have to keep that in focus, you know, and not be sidetracked. Because the enemy, the enemy, Satan, would love to distract all of us from the real mission that's the yeah. issue. Yeah, which I think is, you know, uh, it's a sad realization of the polarization that we see going on right now, like you're saying, is it, it, the problem with polarization is, is once it starts, it seems to get more and more severe mm-hmm. and more and more contradictory and more and more divisive and uh, for everything. You know, before George Floyd and we were, you know, going through corona, there was huge, you know, divisive, arguments over opening the economy versus keeping it closed. And mm-hmm. um, we see all these different, just a, a sign of the times really, in my opinion, as the world continues to fall deeper and deeper into its own sin. I've found that what the media wants, what, you know, social media especially wants is for us to hit on these hot topic situations and they want us to, pick a hard stance on either one and they want us to dig our feet in until one is triumphant. One is claimed king over the other. And it delves into all these things that don't need to be that where there's always the healthy middle ground that is, you know, where we need to be. But in order for that to even come, we have to humble ourselves to realize that we aren't perfect in our Mm -hmm. viewpoint, but yeah. Mike, I appreciate you coming on and and talking about this. You know, I I really, my intention, like we said, is for us to be able to realize the blind spots, like you said, that we have um, in our own lives and our church families and our, um, you know, but in in conclusion, what is, as a a church, you know, you as a pastor, and I'm not trying to get you to make a statement for the Oaks at this exact point, but as a leading a church, what is something that the church should be doing yeah. as a group? Well, obviously, this should be something that, and, and I'm, not, I'm not just saying this to, non, to give a non-answer, uh, yeah. but because I believe that this is the most single most important thing that we can do, and it is pray. <laughs> yeah. We need to be a people who you know, isn't first and foremost concerned with deciding which side of the issue we're going to land on or mostly lean on. We need to be a people 
who recognizes the brokenness, the broken situation all around, and prays, and really prays, cries out to God, we need to learn how to pray about this, and prays with the expectation that somehow God may use me, us, to be a part of the solution. And that solution, that solution is not just fixing the temporal situation, but magnifying the love of Christ, magnifying the power of God, magnifying uh, the grace of God through uh, all the actions that we do um, in proclaiming the gospel. And so, you know, what does the church do? Pray first and foremost. And, you know, along with prayer, man, I commend some fasting. Especially, well, you know, I don't really see this as like that big of an issue. Well, I commend it to you all the more. Take yeah. a day. Take a day to really pray about this. Have you done that? I mean, sure, you've formulated your opinions. Sure, you've had conversations. Sure, you've watched YouTube videos and news videos. But have you taken the time to really seek the Lord and pray? I believe that it makes a difference. I believe that God answers prayer. I also believe that heart change happens when we pray. I can remember a situation not about race, but uh, I was in a situation where somebody was going to come and serve in ministry uh, in a church that I was at, and and I and I was not thrilled about this particular uh, person. Mm-hmm. Didn't like personality. Didn't think this this person was a fit for the position, and I and I had just I had just judged this person. And um, the Lord convicted me. The Lord convicted me about my attitude, and I just knew that I was I was right. Like this this person should not be coming. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> but the Lord convicted me to begin to pray for him, and so I did. And in the process of praying for him, like seriously praying, God completely changed my heart. And by the time he arrived, I had a gift to present to him that I would not have done otherwise. It's just God changed my heart. He prompted me to go get him a little gift, something for his office. So I I handed him a gift and, you know, we developed a pretty significant friendship and I grew to not only get over my uh, dislike of the situation, I grew to have a friend that I learned a lot from who was very different from me. And I think that that's just an illustration of one of the many things that God does when we take the time to pray. He, I think Mother Teresa said it, prayer enlarges the heart mm. to receive the will of God. Yeah. And I think that's one of the, um, the, 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 the benefits for those who labor in prayer of praying yeah. is God shapes our heart in the act. So, uh, and I know I'm belaboring that point because I just want to emphasize that when I say it, I don't mean, oh, we just, yeah, we need we to be praying. Pray, yeah, yeah, yeah. I'll be praying for you. Not, right. not, not that kind of thing. The other thing is what, you know, what I said, let's find ways to listen, to love by listening. Yeah. You know, one of the, the best counselors aren't the ones who know all the answers who know what to say. The best counselors that tend to help people the most are so good because they know how to listen. They know how to uh, actually help a person express themselves. Yeah. 
understand for themselves, right? And and then they're able to speak great words of wisdom because they actually listen to the point where they understand. They can sympathize and empathize. And that's not just true of good counselors. That's something that we should be striving to do. And not just to be a help, but also, I think, because there are things, as we've talked about, that we need to learn through this. Blind spots in our lives that apparently the Lord wants us to deal with now. Yeah, that's good. Well, man, I really appreciate you uh, joining and good hour long. That's not bad. I like that. It's a perfect time, perfect time to conclude. Um, But anyway, thanks again for coming on. I'm glad to be here, brother. Thanks for the invitation.